Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, chrono skimming, classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me snicked in around the time stream on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another XI4P premiere Friday, and we have amazing coverage for you today. We have double coverage of Legion of X. That's two very distinct rooms talking about this book in two very different ways. It's super exciting. And then we have some double coverage for you later on. That's Punisher number three, along with the sort of Daredevil Electra, the hand relevant parts of Devil's Reign Omega. And we can't wait to bring you guys that material. But first, those two amazing rooms of Legion of X. One room looked at things a bit more character oriented. One room looked, looked at things a bit more structurally. And both rooms offer so much to the discussion of this incredible new title and the way it's going to permanently shift the landscape of Krakoa. And we hope you guys enjoy. Don't forget, if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram at X is for podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me chrono skimming around the internet at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Snicked. And I'm TK. You can find me remembering Forget Me Not on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. Hi, this is Jonah. You can find me beating up some gods over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at AsleepAtTheWheel, W-E-I-L, and AsleepAtTheWheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the aggressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida. You find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike, wait, who the hell's Zobby? Yeah, we're here to talk about Legion of X number one. This book was brought to us by the breathtaking creative team of Cy Spurrier, Jan Basildua, Frederico Blee, VCs Clayton Cowles, and Tom Muller with Jay Bowen on design. The incredible cover was brought to us by Deke Ruan and Matthew Wilson. Of course, there's a million incredible variants. And I just have to say the funniest fucking thing about the fact that this is the clear continuation to the the story set up in Way of X is that Bob Quinn finally got to do a cover for this story, but he's off the book. That's ridiculous. So, you know, whatever. Anyway, I am here to start with, the book is centered around so many characters, but none more than Nightcrawler and Legion. And I want to touch in with you guys on how you feel about two men we can pretty fairly say are rightfully the sons of X. You know, whether it's in terms of the bigger picture, created by the context of Mystique and Destiny and their larger focus on mutant foreverdom, or it's his position as one of the sole children of Xavier's dream. And of course, Legion makes every story better, even when he's the worst part of it. So these are two of my all-time favorite characters, and this is one of my all-time favorite writers, and I am, for the rest of my life, a Jan Basildua fan. How did you guys feel about Nightcrawler and Legion coming into this book? So I was a big fan 
fan of Way of X. While not necessarily living up to its promise, the unexpected journey of going from building a religion to building the police was a little bit of a swerve, but I loved the character work. I'm a big Sysburrier fan, and I loved what he was able to do with Legion. And obviously, you know, he's put a lot of time into Legion in the past, and all of that paid off so well, giving Legion of all characters a new opportunity in Krakoa. As a Nightcrawler fan, just always the kind of parallel that didn't always exist, because yes, like Nightcrawler is Mystique's son, but now with Mystique really rising up, especially with what we saw in Inferno, we're at this place where Mystique and Destiny have put themselves up on a level with Xavier. So that way, you know, the child of Mystique and the child of Xavier can, you know, really represent something more than I think it, it even did in Way of X. They're such a great pairing, particularly with this version of Legion, with where Legion has kind of found himself, that Legion wants to be the sanctum. He wants to be the temple and the chapel, and Kurt wants to be the priest. You know, obviously, you know, not all the things about being a priest. Kurt wants to play that role, and so together, they just, they complement each other so well here. Nightcrawler is, in a lot of ways, a child of Xavier insofar as for a lot of his most important years, that was his primary adult influence and the person that guided him. And Nightcrawler often felt like one of the second generation of X-Men who really, as they started off, was much more comfortable with appealing to somebody else's authority and knowing that there was somebody else there to guide him. And we've seen him grow a lot throughout the years. And Nightcrawler is like a really reliable standard, or that's how he's used a lot of the time. I think readers love him a lot more than often writers do. Writers will put him on a team and he'll be really awesome and he'll do great feats, but he's so infrequently a leader and he so infrequently gets really fantastic lots and stories. I mean, the one that we all think about is the Draco, which is just the absolute worst. This has been a nice opportunity. It felt like a group idea to just finally give Nightcrawler the spotlight he deserves in a way that he just gets to be a team leader and a solid protagonist and really be himself and live up to his complex values and ideals that have changed so much over time. On the flip side of that, we've got Legion, who is, you know, in a lot of ways, the child of Moira McTaggart and is a character that I don't think any of us have. I mean, he's really cool and really weird. And I think we all get interested when he shows up as anti-hero kind of villain, force of nature. But the Spurrier run on X-Men Legacy with Legion was really incredible and changed the character in so many ways. And I think gave us an opportunity to break out of the cycle of, oh, Legion's crazy, he's shown up, he really wants to help, but he's doing something bad, blah, 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 blah. And we revisited it very briefly during the Rosenberg run when we did Age of X-Man, and it just kind of, at that point, having seen Spurrier's work on Legion, it felt really stale to go back to that. So this was really refreshing to see a version of him with a writer who feels really confident saying like, no, we're not gonna do the complicated multiple personality kind of villain story again. Legion is just going to show up and be a person that wants to help and be able to, and we can mine conflict in other places. I also think it's important when we talk about Nightcrawler as a leader, go back and remember that, you know, he was given that, like Claremont, in the, particularly in like the early 200s of Uncanny X-Men, there was a stretch where Nightcrawler was like the leader of the X-Men, and he wasn't a good leader. Yeah. 
he's not Storm. He's not Cyclops. He's too nice. Like, the thing is, is like everyone loves Nightcrawler, but he's too nice to really be the leader, which is why he needs someone who's happy to play the asshole part beside him, which he very much has in this book. Well, and to piggyback off of what you're saying briefly, I really think that's a great plug for our chrono skimming coverage, which is right around 200 when we resume there. So great job. Really excited because you guys can check out us talking all about that on Fridays going forward. Definitely excited for that. And yeah, that's why he's always got Wolverine to help him asshole it up. He's not in that recurring group of leaders. You know, when we look at how many X books or team books and how, you know, the leader tends to get the lion's share of, you know, protagonist main character coverage role in that book. Even though he's a popular pick to be on teams, he's not the leader the majority of time because that's not a role that best suits him as a character. He has so much to bring in that regard, but he's not going to make the tough choices like an Aurora or a Scott or a Cable would. But then I think there's a point at which, especially with the original five and the second Genesis X-Men where just by default of seniority you kind of have to get better at being a leader because you might just be the most experienced person in the room and this feels like that's kind of the mood for Nightcrawler like this work has to get done it's something that he's concerned about and when he has collected his team and the people that are also interested in doing this work he happens to be the most senior most experienced person in the room and so he's got to kind of suck it up and be a leader in a way that you know it's not just his turn because the other X-Men are away doing something else. This is something he has to step up to. Yeah, and it works here in this book really well because the people beneath him are Pixie and Lost. And, you know, we're getting, as you said, like people who are much, much later, like he has so much seniority over them. And when have we had an opportunity where the X office would say, yeah, here's a marketable book. It'll have Nightcrawler, great. And then it'll have Forget-Me-Not, It'll have Blindfold, it'll have Lost, it'll have Pixie, it'll have like the rest of that just doesn't, you know, you'd be here in the marketing team like, where's your Summers brother? Where's your Wolverine? Where's your, you know, the characters that, you know, by strength of personality and volume of force are going to, you know, drown Nightcrawler out in, in so many of those moments. But this gets to be in a quieter and much, much prettier place because God, the colors on this are just gorgeous. So when Way of X came out and we were getting these features of Nightcrawler and Legion, I thought these were two characters that needed the same thing because they were searching for the same thing. And I think they were both kind of searching for a purpose in a new world. I often look at Legion as this very fascinating character that often the people around him treat him like a ticking time bomb. And we still consistently see that in these more modern issues where Charles looks at him like, David, you can't be here what if you go into one of your relapses gasp and he's like dad i'm fine i literally carry around two people with brains made of stars to blow me up if something bad happens and legion seems to be coping just fine but the world around him doesn't seem to be treating him as such comparative to kurt who when he got chukrakawa seemed very lost so i was really excited to see them team up and continue to be paired in a way to help other mutants get to a place where they're both I feel really intrigued by how this idea of the spark is going to continue and what that means for all the mutants who believe in it or don't or want to learn about it. But I also do want to see, I want to see if the bond 
that was formed in Way of X will continue into the series. You know, Josh, one of the things that you said that I loved so much was you talked about the nature of the relationship and dynamics with these characters. And you made some mean comments about how second string my precious juggernaut is. And I mean, yeah, kind of. He's kind of second string. But I love him so much. He's so big and he's so hot. And I feel like the second stringers in this book are like such high quality second stringers. They probably each have, you know, several fan Twitters. I'm such a big juggernaut guy and I love Dr. Nemesis. I want to push Fabian Cortez off a boat into another boat that then runs him over and then a third boat comes through and runs him over again. I just don't like Fabian Cortez very much. But how did you guys feel about the overall composition of this incredible team? It's an unbelievable number of like deep wiki motherfuckers. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm running all the forget me not fan accounts. So I this was a special moment for me. Who? Um, <laughs> it's so good. The joke never gets old. He's such a good character. And they made him really hot for this too, for zero reason. Absolutely no reason to do that. But I'm living for it. And he's got a name now. I just think he's probably the most important mutant on Krakoa. And I'm really excited for his journey. But yeah, I mean, I love that we are at a point where you can have characters that you're like, this is a technically B tier character. They haven't been around since the 60s. They haven't had major, like multiple major plot lines. They're kind of from a teen team that maybe isn't as popular as the New Mutants or Generation X. I'm clearly talking about Pixie here. Pixie's an awesome character, but she's never gonna be like an A-list X-Man. But there's so many at this point that your B picks can still be really solid, amazing picks. The Juggernaut is kind of like a B-tier villain, but he's got so much tie and complexity to the Krakoan universe and families that he feels it feels like you have a kind of celebrity guest there when he shows up and you're wondering like what's life like with him and Tom how are things with him and Charles so it's a really neat group of people that I'm excited to see how they work together and how they play together and what the different dynamics are but man this is not a group that you would call a star-studded cast and I think it's really exciting that you can have this kind of team that feels really cool and interesting but has no real technical A-listers besides Nightcrawl. The the one other book that it reminds me of in that sense is um, Christina Strange, Generation X. Like after the fact, reflecting, she was like, it was so hard to pitch because I gave them my list of characters I wanted. And they're like, you have to have someone people know. She's like, but these are my garbage babies. I love them so much. Everybody can have their trash babies, but you do need a sanitation worker to bring them in. That usually does have to be someone with face value that people are like, okay, I, I think I could trust this book. I love when we get mutants that aren't often seen. I love getting mutants that often don't get put into stories because not only does I think do I think that helps gain more traction with fans, it also I think does justice for those characters, for their creators and people and the people who already did like them you know I, you can probably throw out a poll and i guarantee there at least be a one fan for every single mutant out there and it is really nice when it's not the exact same faces over and over again not that we don't like those faces we've also seen that sort of rebound where like marvel has tried over the years to give you 
you completely fresh teams. You know, I think back on stuff like the Morlocks miniseries experiment, the Brotherhood miniseries experiment, and they had Ecstatics come in and clean the Brotherhood up. But like at the same time, Ecstatics, that worked out. Children of the Atom maybe didn't have the resounding success that we had really hoped from the title. But I think we do sometimes get these fresh gens and it lasts. I don't know. It's it's really hit or miss and it's always creator. I feel like young X-Men is the most forgotten of the recent eras of restarts. Hey, sorry, Mark Guggenheim, you're TV famous. You don't need comics. But at the same time, like we're kind of missing in a mutant kid generation at this point. Like it's been a while since we've had one. I'm still wishing we got a Krakoan school book, but Scotty Young absolutely killing it with Strange Academy. So we're getting like new generation stuff still happens and is totally viable. And, you know, I think regardless of how successful it is broadly and how much every single character that is created goes on to be like remembered and loved, you always get at least one or two that can kind of lay the foundation for a new generation of readers to be like, that was my in character. I will always love this person. When I'm reading comics 20 years from now, I want to see them on the Avengers. So I have one really major point I want to make before we go any further into the issue. And that is, it is heartbreaking not to have the incredible Bob Quinn on this title after he had done so much work developing these characters, their perspective, their interplay, their visual dynamics. Because the way a team looks on a page, that's visual dynamics. And that's something that is important. But Jan Basildua and Frederico Blee have transcended my expectations. Like, you know, Cy Spurrier has been writing the song of my heart for like 20 years, and I'm such a big Cy Spurrier fan. But like, this book could have been garbage. With art like this, it still would have been at the top of my list. How did everybody feel about what is some of the most visually complex art that the already setting the bar Krakoan era has produced for this title? I am absolutely in love when David goes into what I essentially am going to call his mind palace and he talks to Ruth slash blindfold. For some reason, the way that the art looks and everything just comes together brings me unbridled joy and the neurons in my brain give me so much dopamine because I look at this art and I go, this is what art was created for. Everything in the world, every single thing, every moment in history, in art history to be specific, has led to this moment where I can look at these panels and look at these pages and go, this makes me happy. Yeah, I mean, Jonah really, I think, captured the exuberance that I personally felt reading this. It's It feels like it really builds on what Bob Quinn established in Way of X. And it's funny because the other person that I felt like I saw some references to, especially in the faces in this art, was Marcus Toe, who Bob Quinn is taking over for in Knights of X. Uh, it's just funny, like all of these sort of visual connections that are happening in this era. It's great to see how creators can collaborate on a much larger scale and pick up on established trends that other artists have laid down. This book is amazingly versatile in the way it's able to play in the astral plane on Arako, on Krakoa, and really drive home an aesthetic to each setting that feels consistent but really exciting, and then drill even further and give individual characters that kind of aesthetic. Again, like the the one that I'm so excited about is Forget-Me-Not, who it just feels like somebody cared enough to give him a look that is familiar, but also is like, let's let's have a little fun and not just have this guy be a sad sack the whole time. The colors were absolutely gorgeous. You know, since House of X 
powers of 10, we've had this standard Krakoan Marte Gracia palette that all of the other colorists have been using quite well. And we've seen that slowly expanded into an Arakan palette and some other places. But man, what we're getting here, the, the beautiful colors for the astral plane, and even with the Arako scene with, you know, the deities, the gods, the, you know, there's so much kind of superposition and things that are almost like transparent or gossamer like that it's all in the colors and the way that they kind of um, just shade over each other interact it's it's beautiful and and the the emotions these these simple faces that we get particularly in in the Ruth and David scenes which were some of my favorites it's the colors the body postures the facial expressions the hair they managed to make them so impactful it's nice after this whole mystique and destiny with you know mystique just absolutely losing her shit in the you know the like give me back my wife and I love that Sai just kind of took this quiet patient path for Legion like the one that everyone expects and is sitting back and waiting for him to lose his shit you know but it's no less satisfying and rewarding when he gets Ruth back um, and just a, a beautiful payoff to you know the last couple years getting her back I'm excited to get to love her in the Krakoan age there are so many characters that like you've been done dirty by the X-Men get krakoa you know on the subject of Juggernaut that multiple writers have said yeah they just sort of write Juggernaut and Black Tom is gay together they, there's not a whole lot they can do about it on the page but that is how they write it and like good because like that's like the best hottest gay couple ever and speaking of the way people write things oh my god all right let's just get it it's just let's just, just find it's just it's one huge. page it's the worst storm dialogue I have ever read and like I'm sure I can point to where this is in line with stuff she said when she's been like this thing or that thing it just did not work for me even when she was sky dancing with Nightcrawler in a tuxedo and they had their awkward like romantic moments yeah would never I'm sorry this will go down for me in history along with Emma Frost telling the century that something will be like taking a cosmic dump as just the worst least cute character <laughs> that just I, the, the idea that nobody was like listen I get that you have a thing that needs to be said by the character to move the story forward you just literally can't use these words together because these, this character would never say it we Sage let... do that thing you do where you send an email with your mind <laughs> there's a lot of comic dialogue that can be imperfect for a particular character and still feel plausible and still feel real and at the very least it's something that we don't really harp on but every once in a while you have these moments where due to the sparsity of other stuff in the panel due to the particular character the time the pacing the introduction it is just so stark that what is being said is not what this character would say and there are moments that are very difficult to forget when they come up and it's the contrast on the page because the page begins with a panel of Kurt who's been invited to see one of his oldest friends he's been summoned by one of his oldest friends who is now the queen regent of the entire solar system and of course he is going to above and beyond genuflect he's going to give the deepest bow and the 
greatest formalities and the most effusive praise. And it's so perfectly on character for him. And then the contrast from panel to panel is startling. It's just the fact that she says, get up, idiot. That's the least yes and improving. The idea that Storm wouldn't play into it and be like extra goddess in a really hammy way just to kind of like greet her friend who's joking with her. I I don't know. I mean, This is the Storm who welcomes, who was welcoming everyone back from resurrection with those what? mighty praise. Like, like she didn't even say, get up, you idiot, when Fabian Cortez was resurrected. Like, I unfortunately don't have words because I have to agree with you, Josh. I think the Nightcrawler parts are genuinely good in that they really capture what makes Nightcrawler special and why it's a character I often enjoy reading is because he's always set up as this very lighthearted, goofy character that will just kind of make jokes and try to make people smile. However, this is not Storm, Mama. This Storm wouldn't say these things, I don't think. They have had so much history together. She has not been on a Rocco that long for her to uh, have a lightning bolt this far up her butt, as she would say. I do think it was a little bit of a missed opportunity. Can we talk about how we finally get to see what I believe is the last member of the Iraqi Quiet Council of Aura Serata? And it's a giant floating fucking eyeball. And that the is- eyeball's not the mutant. The mutant is on top. I have a weird thing for the orb. And I love I love Ruby. And I I love giant eyeballs in things. So this was this was porn to me. This was like beyond what I could have. And the guys on either side of it, they're just so hot. I just want to step on them. This is a perfect page with the Nightcrawler looking all kinds of sexy at the bottom. Reductive. Man, reductive. Uh, this was visually a book I will never forget. Also, shout out to Jenny from the block. Weaponless Jen talking about wanting to bone Nightcrawler. I have never felt more represented in comics ever. I feel seen. I feel heard. Uh, I feel represented. And I still think it's I think it's absolutely funny considering that Kurt's the one that came up with the Make More Mutants law, but they also had to clarify we can't force people to copulate. So I, I definitely get it. It's, it's a really hot book. There's so many unbelievably nuanced sexy characters too. Like Forget Me Not Here is real hot dr nemesis is always a knockout like dr nemesis is always the sexiest someone science gross can be and we didn't get it this issue which i was sad because i wanted it but i know it's coming when we get him with dazzler she helps to reflect and you know just give him a little sexy osmosis as well for everyone around to see it helps that the art is so imaginatively beautiful do i really think that that is the real proportions and the way the bottles would break in terms of like uh, against juggernaut on the splash page no it's stylized it's fun but that stylized fun is what makes this book really pop I am also super in for however long this joke is going to run. Zabi coming back and being like, yep, teamwork makes the dream work. And then Juggernaut coming in behind him. Did another one all by myself. Because it's these characters. That's something that Cy Spurrier is better at than most people. He really captures the essence of what makes a character beautiful. And I think that's why Lost is such a knockout victory every time she appears. For many people, she was the standout number one thing 
thing in the pages of Way of X. And getting to see her continue her story is really lovely. How did everybody feel about the Pixie Spike Lost storyline? And the sad rock slide mention. Oh my god. It was sad and beautiful that they go and like paint rock slide now. What Psy does with particularly Spike's dialogue, there's a part where Spike is just like, I don't like being touched. Please don't. And they're so respectful. And there were so many little things in here that shattered the able normative basis that like reeks behind so much writing. And, you know, we had Blindfold who said, no, like, I don't want my body. It hurts too much. I prefer to be this way. And, you know, we had Spike being respected for not being touched. And we have, you know, Zabi and we have Lost coming into, you know, taking back their autonomy after having Onslaught hiding inside of them. And there's so many of these, you know, Pixie who's been through so much to, to kind of have them coming this way. Jenny from the block with, you know, being weaponless and what that means on Araco, but showing and respecting all of these people for, for their, not just their decisions, but for who they are and validating them was just fantastic. And I don't know if a writer like Sperrier has to do it over and over and over again for the majority of readers to pick up on it because once or twice might just be too subtle, but I loved it across this entire book. And to me, it was really why you need character. Like as we spoke earlier that, you know, it doesn't have Wolverines or Summers is that you need some of these, you know, what other writers would consider broken toys for Spurrier to show that they're not. I also think, especially the scene with Pixie and Lost is really important. This book was going to be problematic for a lot of people because the pitch is essentially Krakoan cops. It's very clear that for Spurrier, it's so much more complicated than that. We're dealing with a very different concept of law and laws. And this is kind of the third branch of Krakoan justice with the other two being seen in Immortal X-Men and X-Force and Wolverine. We're seeing a lot of problem with Krakoan statehood and Krakoan law in those books. And we're seeing a lot of enforcement of ideals that's really problematic and disturbing and kind of shatters the dream of Krakoa. It's really, I understand how for a lot of people, given their experience in real life with the actual police, the idea of a Krakoan police force filled with characters that are really sweet and complex and interesting and funny, it just kind of might come off in this way that's like, are you just trying to glorify law enforcement? The first instinct for me absolutely was, especially when he's doing dispatch and it's modeled very much like a Hill Street Blues, like a, you know, like a classic kind of like TV cop show. And it's like, oh my God, we're going to do copaganda. But then it very quickly reveals itself and, and you've got to be able to turn the page and get past it. It reveals itself to be more of a, what if, what if the role of police was actually to protect and serve? You know, too many writers beat you over the head with their subtlety to make sure you get the point. So yeah, there's, there's going to be some dialogue about this, but you know, I think ultimately this is more of a critique of law enforcement by saying, yes, law enforcement can be better, but God, it's such a sensitive area to, it's to really tough. dance through there. And you know, there's moments like with juggernaut, that's a member of ostensibly a law enforcement office that is doing violence to get the mission done. This is never going to be perfect. And it's not a perfect metaphor. This is an exploration. And I think Spurrier is really doing an honestly best attempt to yes, critique and also reflect like what could be in a world where there was a concern about people 
people's well-being and lives and where you have officers, again, like Pixie and Lost, that are on missions that are just designed to help people and take care of people and respect people that have nothing to do with maybe needing to use violence to protect others or anything like that. This is just checking in on a citizen that might need some extra help. And I think it's a really beautiful moment and it's one we're going to need a lot of anchoring moments in a book like this. Otherwise, no matter how heroic everybody is, no matter how bad the villains they're fighting are, they will become cops doing violence to save. I think I have a lot of expectations and hopes that I know that Sai can reach to make sure the conversation sticks to where it's supposed to be. Nimrod just punched the fuck through Magus. Magus is like an Omega level threat. Nimrod just punched right the fuck through Magus. And to take Magus off the board off panel is so fundamentally avoiding showing us how Nimrod could do it. And I really need to get everybody's opinion on this. I mean, Nimrod is not a minor character by any stretch, nor is he unpowerful, but this either nerfed Magus or Super Omega Nimrod. Yeah, we've been seeing Nimrod grow in threat. I think that this was good and important to help establish that a character who has been beaten by the X-Men so many times over the years and whose timeline does kind of move them around so much that, you know, if you think about it too much, it was like, wait, isn't this a less powerful powerful version than some of the ones they may have beaten based on wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. I love the idea of continuing to build or us seeing like Nimrod just murder blast the shit out of some previous major villain in like just side panel pages or in build up, you know, as as we continue to remember how strong he is in this era and the threat that is looming. I think this was one of those moments that kind of could have gone either way. I feel like if we didn't just do it as this sort of moment where it really has a lot more to do with setting up Legion's relationship to his father, to Krakoa, Ruth's involvement in picking up this Menry engram, the fact that they're getting this all from the astral plane, not from like news in space. It, it's either that where the fact that Nimrod killed Magus is really almost background information to all the stuff of how they got there and who it's being presented to and why. Or you have to take like an entire book like New Mutants and have them all go out to space to help Warlock witness this moment where we see Magus die at the hands of Nimrod. It's either got to be this enormous story or no story at all because Krakoa keeps building not just vertically but horizontally as well so there's so much more stuff that we're all interested in seeing. I think when this all started out it was a lot more plausible to believe that we would see the collision of the phalanx or the technarchy and the human machines like Nimrod. At this point to get there from anywhere we really currently are would be a huge change in every book but those elements have still been set up and they are still looming it makes sense to you know have some of it just be background stuff just slight little references so that when we eventually get to a natural point where we confront this stuff head on longtime readers who've been paying attention will sort of say like oh yeah I picked up that reference and that thing this has very clearly been coming for a while and you know your typical big two comic writer would give you six issues 
issues of, you know, Nimrod versus Magus and one page of Ruth and David cuddling. But your typical X-Men fan would much rather have six issues of Ruth and David cuddling and one page of Nimrod killing Magus. I certainly would. Same. Oh, absolutely. And if it looks like this, I think we we can excuse the lack of giant punchy punchy fight scene. I also need to give it up to Mother Righteous, who, I mean, talk about a design that reminds me I'm Pan. She does it for me. And the fucking cape is everything. And her giant red boobs. I'm into this. This is this this is a good look. Her nickname is Tuxedo Femme. Oh! Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Steve, as usual, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. You can find me over on Twitter and Instagram. And this is Swanchu. You can find me on Twitter at Lost in Quico. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me online on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I hope you survived this experience like Banshee somehow did with the skin back and everything. Unlike the Thunderer. Really? Oh, unlike. Unlike the Thunderer. And yeah, like Banshee, who is inexplicably fine. We're here to talk today about Legion of X number one, Do What Thou Wilt. Here we have a book about Krakoa's not cops. (laughs) 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 Having read through this a number of times so far, all I can say about that high concept is that maybe the writer doth protest too much about this one. How do we all feel about these cops that are totally, totally not cops, but are actually cops? A cab. (laughs) (laughs) The more they they said that they weren't cops the more they came off like cops yes they have a police station okay they are having morning briefings as to what to do they have interpreted the laws of Krakoa in their own manner like these are just fucking cops and you know uh, uh, I'm not sure where it's gonna go but I'm interested to see where it's like law and order SEX (laughs) like SEX pretty much you know special exceptional we're not cops x-men <laughs> all right i'm sure nightcrawler would agree with that designation i agree with you guys about i mean these guys they they made up their own laws like an extra law that only they follow and they have a station i mean they don't have uniforms yet but <laughs> those are coming soon that is like a matter of opinion and time honestly Holy yeah. Uh... yeah i think it's only like nightcrawler like everyone else i think is understands what they are but nightcrawler is like we're not cops but everyone is you are cops, so shut yeah. the fuck up, right? Juggernaut goes into the bar and he's like, You have the right to remain smush. <laughs> In this, I find Nightcrawler to be insufferable. He is the biggest cop of them all, and it's really unfortunate oh. to see my favorite blue baby written this way. I want to just take a moment and talk about his briefing scene in this beginning, because it irked the hell out of me. There's a lot going on here that I really, really dislike um, for Nightcrawler. I mean, like, first of all, he is he did build a cop station inside of the mutant's, like, imaginary pleasure dome, where people can imagine... <laughs> anything that they need or want Uh, so that sucks that that's what his fucking imagination came with but like all right it's a jail of the mind yeah i want to i want to start by saying like first of all his second in command in this cop station and the only other person who can remember zabi the forget-me-not mutant is fabian cortez i love the fact that they brought in forget-me-not i love forget-me-not being here i love that but like his own his presence and the fact that only two people can remember him puts a hierarchy in here that is really uncomfortable why is cortez white 
supremacist and mutant supremacist, the second command of the police over Lost, the woman whose parents he murdered. <laughs> like, um, Lost is- And why is she working with him? She does not even know who Forget Me Not is. That's so crazy to me. And it's, yeah, there's just so much grossness about that. And then in addition, we have the rundown of the crimes of the day, which all of them really bothered me. The fact the the fact that Nightcrawler incorrectly assumes that Rockslide is being graffitied against his will and assumes that graffiti is a crime. The the fact that there is no right. love against graffiti, but he still talks about it as if graffiti is a crime and not like one of the pillars of hip hop culture. This is intolerable to me. Right. And on top of that, graffiti is treated as a crime here, but then he literally right after that says that theft is not illegal, except for somebody should tell Gambit to stop stealing. Oh my god, that pissed me off. Yeah, why is there a string of burglaries to investigate, and why does anybody have to go tell Gambit to knock it off if theft is not illegal? You're cops. Sorry, I'm done with that. And, and why would you would assume that it was Gambit that was the one stealing instead of, oh, I don't know, doing your job and investigating to make sure that it's not some other mutant, and to make sure that it's not, like, I don't know, a creature who happened to have come out of either Krakoa or the sea who happens to get a little grabby. <laughs> I'm serious. Like agu- iguanas will snatch things. Monkeys will snatch things. Like there are creatures that will like wander into resort type areas, grab shit and go. They're not thieves. They're just opportunists. They're capitalists. Yeah. But I mean, like the fact that they automatically go, oh, it must be Gambit. I'm like, what in the fuck? Maybe they know with Gambit. Maybe they Dude, know. Dude, that is profiling straight up. It is profiling. And also if theft is not illegal, why are they bringing it up at the police station? That is all I... I just, I cannot understand somebody saying there's been a string of burglaries to look into. Theft is not illegal. Tell somebody to stop stealing. Right? I think that it's really unfortunate that this book came out this week, specifically. Oh, yeah. You kind of hit that nail on the head because, yes, this rang like copaganda through and through, and it pissed me right the fuck off because we've been seeing copaganda in action all this last week, Mm -hmm. and we've seen that the corruption goes from the absolute top to the absolute bottom to watch some of my favorite characters be turned into just the absolute worst representation of people they've been turned into cops the thing that kills me the most is the cast of characters that he's chosen to be the cops for this so we've got lost we've got gorgon we've got chamber we've got hickey got maggot dr nemesis makes sense okay i'm not even gonna right but like and then it looks like dust is there so like we've got all of these people who would have at some point in time been oppressed by their minority status or their obvious mutation wanting to be Krakoan cop. It's just, I mean, it doesn't strike me that if they would want to do it, they would want to do it differently. And this is just exactly like human society cop. Yeah, this this doesn't make any sense. This is frustratingly unimaginative in its approach to policing. This is the first issue of a series and I'm going to give a little bit of credit to the writer on this one that maybe this is a story about how policing is an outdated and flawed human institution that needs to be gotten rid of entirely. But mm-hmm. I, reading this comic smacks so hard to me of somebody who during the Black Lives Matter protests was saying abolish the police and now says, oh, what I meant was defund the police. This is... Oh, and by what I mean by defund the police is blah, ref- blah, blah. Reform blah, blah. it through a few good apples who can work with this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's bullshit and I don't want to hear it anymore. Like, maybe this comic will be telling a more nuanced story than this and it does make some motions towards that direction but honestly I'm very tired of seeing Nightcrawler be put in the situations where he has to basically be an idiot um, 
um, yeah. in order for the story to progress the way it does. And it's it's really unfortunate. And I, I wish that rather than coming up with police for a paradise and then trying to figure out what's wrong with that and telling a story about what's wrong with that, a more progressive and a more interesting and a more imaginative take would be imagining a mutant society that doesn't need cops and can function mm -hmm. as a community. And this is not that. This is putting in artificial hierarchy among the mutants they have given themselves authority over every other mutant because the guy who runs the police station is also the guy who makes the laws he literally made one of these laws and decides how to enforce them selectively if you're going to say that the spark is try new things then why not try something new other than american style policing with american style police stations and american style enforcement like there there are things in this that make motions towards change there is lost thankfully is the vo the voice of consent within this saying things like oh well we can't actually force anybody to come down to the station with us we need to say like pixie immediately jumps to we should kidnap this person like regular police do and take them against their will and lost says no and that's nice but like they do also still arrest somebody violently in the other part of the issue. That just makes Lost the quote-unquote good cop. Yeah. yeah, Yes, and that is kind Everybody of else's bad cop. Like, yeah, that... Ugh. Ugh. My big problem with this is where does this fit in the story that we're trying to tell overall for Krakoa, right? So right. we've got two books that have already addressed, you know, the idea of either, you know, like Krakoan prison system, right? We've got Sabretooth, which is going on right now, um, mm -hmm. which I think is telling so much more of a nuanced story. And then before that, we even had uh, the Hellions, which dealt with, you know, mutant society trying to see what to do with rule breakers, right? Without mm -hmm. throwing them into the pit. So this just seems like a third attempt at the same thing that I'm just like wait what, what's going on? Why recreate oppressive structures in the human world when they didn't already exist on Krakoa? Why put Juggernaut, who is not a mutant, on the <laughs> of police over mutants? In the past, before he reformed, Juggernaut was a bullier of mutants, right? So why are you going to have the bully of mutants be on the police force as one of like maybe two humans that reside on the island? I get there's some interesting ideas you could do behind reform and showing you know if you believe in that style of like rehabilitation where like you would have the the oppressor become like a protector then okay fine i just but he's not a protector at i know all. like he even talks about how much he loved busting heads like the good old days i'm like oh my fucking god are you kidding me having juggernaut on this team in combination with cortez who appears to have a position of power of the rest of them oh. is just it, it's an extremely bad look i hope that the series is going to delve into that but i again question the merit of recreating this human oppression among the mutants and then explaining why it's bad all i don't know i can't speak for the entire rest of the world but we americans can absolutely look to the what is happening around us right now and has been happening us around us for decades as like we've all we already see what the problems are with police can we think of a better way than just how do we reform the cops there's definitely motions in here towards like ideas of better policing but there are no motions in here towards something that is better than policing and that's i think a fundamental failing of the concept that is presented here so i mean from this point onward essentially we're going to have to just talk about how well this book executes this and given how way of x went and how it turned out i have lost a lot of faith in in this writer to handle that extremely well i am so so with you and it's kind of a little bit heartbreaking for me because a i love nightcrawler he is my blue boy he is my sex 
sexy elf, okay? I fucking love him. But like for the last year or so, the iterations of Nightcrawler that I've been getting have been bouncing between religious zealot to religious politician to religious cop. Because he's like, we've got these tenants to follow. Tenants that you created when you said you were a priest, but you couldn't keep your dick in your pants. So that's why you left the seminary. I'm like, the fuck? And oh my god. I mean, ugh. And then and then we have uh what was it, Sazen, the the weaponless, and 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 the first thing out of their mouth is, hey, wanna fuck? I'm like, I, I want to applaud the boldness, but also you're trying to you're trying to stick your dick in a cop. Like, really? To be fair. And is also a cop of her own kind. <laughs> oh, that's true. Something this book sets up that I think is the most interesting thing in it is the parallel and contrast between Krakoan attempts at justice and the Arakai system of justice, which by no means do I think is actually a system of justice. I think that if you <sighs> challenge someone oh to God. a challenge and if you win, you get justice. And if you lose, like what happens? That sucks. But like, it is a really interesting system and it's clearly one that's much older than Krakoa's existence. And in their system they don't necessarily have cops so much as they have and i'm not going to say this isn't cop like because it absolutely is and it's also bad but like they have a person who is a referee who then executes yeah. you if you run away from the fight which is a like distinctly different and probably still bad thing <laughs> but no that it's not a different thing but that's the whole thing that <laughs> that just shows me that if the person with the most power aka the person with the most socio or economic power wins and the person who doesn't it like more than likely does not get justice. That is a more interesting idea to try than just creating a human American police force in Krakoa. It's something mm. that fits the community. You said that it's using a community to solve community problems. And it really is that. I mean, especially when the entire community as a whole attacks a god later in the issue. But like, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's also like, who I, I can't say this for the Iraqi because we don't know much about them yet. And a lot of what Krakoans mm. think about them is so reductive. But it is. It's, it's true. interesting to know the Iraqi may not consider a person worthy of justice if they cannot conquer a challenge, whether that's combat or chess or what have you. That may be part of their culture is that maybe the justice is not yours because you did not earn it. I don't know. Which... How many times have we seen that in Western culture? Yes. I mean, that's just might makes right, which, I mean, is stupid. It's not a way to get actual justice anyway. I think justice might be sparing on Arako in the sense that we know it on Earth. After we get the whole rundown on how this book is going to be policing, there's <laughs> Interspace, there's a story about David and Blindfold's reunion that's probably the most poignant emotion in this book. And I also want to say this is some of the most astonishing art in the entire book mm. when David and Blindfold get back together between the colors and John Basildua's incredible line work. I think I just gotta give a shout out to the colors because that's just, mm -hmm. they were great. I think like very ethereal in every every time we visited David and I mean, not just with Ruth, but in general, every time we, we saw the uh, like this astral plane kind of thing, mm -hmm. I really like those colors. I do love the otherworldly feel of David's astral plane. That is so beautiful and so amazing. I think the one single best panel of art for me was Juggernaut smashing through on the glue, Green Lagoon. I love the art. I will absolutely say that right up front. Like the art is amazing. The line work is so good. Like the shape, the structure, the color is amazing throughout this book. It is really, really well done. And yeah, when Juggernaut came smashing through that wall, my brain immediately went over to poor Glob. He's like, oh, <laughs> 
like, he's gotta clean that shit up because you know juggernaut's gonna pick up after himself he's not he's not gonna pick up after the absolute trash wreck of you know every single bottle of liquor that he just made like yeah yeah, yeah. juggernaut has a very mercenary attitude towards this kind of thing we know for a fact that he's the kind of person who will destroy a bar and then leave thousands of dollars for them to fix it back up i don't know if this counts as disrespecting the sacred land because it's not like money is going to regrow the bar so <laughs> juggernaut is himself a great commentary on the ineffectiveness of police in any situation that requires nuance especially contrasted with zabi who is an extremely interesting character in this i do love how this juggernaut scene is a also an obvious throwback to that classic issue one thing this page like like that single page extremely funny line great visual done the lettering too the lettering is beautiful on that like do you have the right to bring smushed in bright red like that's fucking amazing i do think federico blee has uh improved astonishingly from the beginning of dawn of x and maybe nowhere is that more apparent than his coloring of storm which is highly improved from some of the pale goddesses we've seen before but i did mm-hmm. want to ask raven specifically and the rest of you how you felt about storm's voice in the scene because her voice feels extremely off in a way that no not right no yeah no i was like this isn't storm like the moment she opened her mouth i was like that's not storm that is not how storm would talk at all ever like storm isn't your homegirl from around the way and that's kind of how they made her seem no that's not storm she'd never use get up idiot especially not to somebody who she's been a lover to in the past and is still friends with in the present like no and the funny thing is she's slowly becoming the leader of a black panther type movement uh yeah absolutely which i like that that's uh, a development for her character speaking of black panther i feel like john ridley has often written both t'challa and storm in ways that remind me more of american like black speech than of the way that they have traditionally talked in comics storm just generally does not speak in colloquial to the point where some writers go too far in the opposite direction and talk have her like not know what cell phones are or not understand basics <laughs> oh my god i think that's also a mistake but i think this swings in the other way where it feels like size Spurrier did not write her as storm but just wrote her as like i don't know maybe what he imagines a black woman from america to sound like or maybe no he didn't he didn't even black. write her black that's the problem he, he didn't even write her black storm is technically african-american her father yeah. is from the americas he, he, you know she grew up for like the first two years in harlem yeah like she is traditionally african-american so even if she were to go slightly more aave i would have understood that but she didn't even get written with aave she was just given bitchy megan i can't speak to exactly what he's going for or what it sounds like but it doesn't sound like storm and she feels like a caricature a little bit i have hopes that that'll be a little different going forward although storm in this era has been a little bit more relaxed in her speech but it's just it's sometimes very jarring past that scene we do get everybody's <laughs> new favorite blackie eye mutants yeah what did everybody think about aura Serata? i love her i love her so much she is insane she is a floating eyeball on a throne and like her bottom part looked like a wrestling belt or something she's on a throne she's got her like lug like eyes that connect to her big eye that's sitting on top of she is fucking amazing she's literally an eye and a baby body it's so fucking <laughs> creepy so obviously like the slash comes off of her neck i'm noticing i thought it was connected to the back of her do we think her throne is 
part of her or part of her out like that i i think it probably covers part of a structure probably possibly a more sensitive structure because those are optic nerves coming out of her backside leading up to the front of the eyeball and i think that cape is like connected to the front drapey bit that goes across the chest you can see it on the next page you can see her the back of her so it's like outfit not not part of her or at least it looks like outfit yeah so i yeah so i think that's like um a crown or a decoration but probably has a dual duty of protecting possibly a soft structure not that not like an entire uh... floating eye isn't soft (laughs) yeah i wonder what her 3d perception is like oh my god well she does have two optic nerves for one eyeball so i bet that's weird (laughs) like two irises in one eyeball yeah i don't want to think about that (laughs) i think it's a really fun part of the design that there's still an underboob on this eyeball lady. Christ, I was choked on coffee on that one. It's certainly like the least exploitative and erotic form of underboob I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I know that there are some of you out there who are really into this, and I'm very proud of you all. So let's talk a little bit about Iraqi justice and the way that it works. We've learned a little bit more about Krakoan justice and... I like the laws are given a little bit more detailed, but also a little bit more massively broad interpretations to them in a data page. And one of the most troubling things I think in this is the part where Nightcrawler literally says, I prefer to take a broad ethical interpretation. And it's like, it's great that you prefer oh. to take a broad ethical interpretation of a law, but like when you're not in charge, if that ever happens, who is going to be taking their own broad ethical interpretations? Mm. Like this law can be interpreted in so many ways, similar to how the Eternals can interpret any of their laws to allow things like omni-genocide and yet like this doesn't seem to trouble Nightcrawler and it doesn't seem to trouble anybody that these laws are basically laws he created at least 50% of and is in charge entirely of interpreting how they work like he is judge, Mm -hmm. jury, and not executioner but everything else the only thing that gives me a little hope is that he's not doing it just to throw people in the holes although they don't want to throw people in the hole in the case of their one suspected murderer that the juggernaut takes in against his will without explaining what's going on like it would have been nice if they had been able to say like hey we're here to kind of like enforce the laws and if we could get you to come back with us then we could talk about whether or not this is real but instead he just makes mm-hmm. and says like hey come back to the police station we'll figure it out there anybody who's on the run from american law is going to know exactly what that means which is my freedom is going away i'm going in the hole so of course he's not going to come with so my question is if this guy chooses not to cooperate like he already has then he's probably just going to go in the hole right because what are what are the options left other than force or violence that available to a police station, for example. There are other institutions that might be able to do things, but a police station can only do one thing. They already beat the crap out of this guy for resisting while not explaining what the charges were. And mm-hmm. we have seen that all too friggin' often in real life. So... Okay, Nightcrawler in this book is seeming to operate from the like philosophy of, if you didn't do something wrong, why are you running? Like Hubris. He is operating from white man hubris level. Like, the Iraqi, I, I like the fact that they slayed, you know, would-be gods. If we're gonna have a god, they need that god needs to prove that they're real and that they're deserving of any kind of worship. And if they aren't, we fucking boot them. I love how very cling on that idea is is that they see their gods because they were more trouble than they were worth they want to find a god who is worth their worship and praise this book is social commentary on theocratic or religiously led law enforcement aka nightcrawler but also atheistic law enforcement culture where they're running into the same problems where the the least powerful or the weakest members don't necessarily get justice or or an even shake but the 
strongest get what they want. In addition, they also talk about the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. On Araco, which they obviously decided that maybe the guy who can summon gods shouldn't be the guy in control of the law. Mm-hmm. Also on Krakoa, where you have the guy who just attempted to create a mutant religion, integrating those in with the rest of the laws and being like the chief priest of Krakoa and also the head cop and also on the quiet council and also a lawmaker. Mm-hmm. Like they both absolutely have their their failures and foibles as a country or, or culture that has religion and a country and culture that does not have religion, but they are running into similar problems either way. There needs to be a different way to go about this all this divinity talk gave me probably my favorite line in the entire comic which is expression of divinity is a challenge not to a person but to the people and they shall answer it as one i thought that was extraordinarily cool i love the idea of an entire people attacking and trying to kill a god in order to determine whether or not it's worthy of their worship i think that's super cool and probably the most brilliant and interesting idea in this book so far but then we get that data page that talks about like the death of ukesh or well not really the death the decapitation and continued living of ukesh <laughs> The whole whole idea that like, you know, there was a civil war and they had to solve it by getting rid of all these gods because the gods were just there to cause more problems. Then we have that entire fight against the god, which has some of the best art in the entire comic. I thought just really phenomenal. The most unprepared god I've ever seen. Yep. And of course, yielding is admitting that one is unworthy of worship and that's worse than death to a god. I thought that was a really uh, nice line. And we have hints of maybe Loki showing up on Krakoa. Let us just take that moment. Friggin' even though Ukesh the bridge brought this god into corporeal being, Aura Serata like blinked that god straight the fuck back out of existence. There's a couple things we haven't touched on yet in this issue, and those include the confrontation between David, the quiet council and warlock i'd love to hear how you guys feel about how this went down especially since i think that david was extremely discompassionate in dealing with warlock in a way that makes me feel like this was more of a way to one-up his father than it was to actually like deliver news to a friend oh it totally was when he's sitting there telling warlock that you know like somebody deserves to know when they've lost their father forever he doesn't say like somebody deserves to know when their fathers die he says when they've lost their father forever and you look like right at charles so he is delivering a message to Charles more than he's delivering a message to Warlock and my poor little robot baby like I feel so bad for him like he has to like learn this horrible for him news like anybody else would be great if they're like murdering father who is trying to murder all of the other technarchy like died everybody be like oh thank god and Warlock's like oh no uh, and that too that panel where they show Nimrod killing Magus and with all the other technarchy around him I was like oh, this is probably like one of the best panels I've seen so like it's an amazing panel too that was straight up a, a total dick move <laughs> from David. <laughs> like, Warlock and Magus spent most of their lives as enemies, but child deserves to hear in person, don't you think? It's like, oh, shit, throwing some shade, like, in front of the entire council. Like, he just drug his father for everything he was worth. I'm somebody who cares a lot about Warlock and Warlock's feelings, and just to have David come in and be like, Warlock, your father's dead. Hmm, fascinating. I didn't even know your kind had souls. And then to turn immediately to his father right. for a, for a one-up like it just seemed so like callous honestly okay so was it just me or did warlock feel like he just got kind of hate crimed right there oh, like he totally i did. didn't even know your your kind had souls like <gasps> where have we heard this before for such a throwaway scene that really didn't drive the plot of this book along as much as you would think it is this has got some really 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 strong repercussions that could come out of it like nimrod now has techno organic technology as part of his system 
I really don't like how he wrote he did things to the body. I like I, I understand yeah. that it probably means like stealing stuff from it, but why the implication of like necrophilia? That was really strongly hinted at, and I ugh. the subtle implication that that body was violated in some way. It's like I know that you probably don't mean it in that way, but it could very well read like it was inappropriately violated, and it's just it was thrown at Warlock so callously, like zero fucks given about possible emotional repercussions or or anything to that effect and it was it was just oh it read like like seeing the news about yet another person of color being murdered kind of thing where they just don't even care they just jump straight to the clip of hey and here they are being murdered it's like oh jesus seriously warning the only thing i do love about this scene is that david refers to warlock as doug special pal (laughs) like and they were roommates yeah (laughs) david doesn't always know how to interact with people and like i will give him a lot for that he's maybe not being callous here he's maybe just not understanding the kind of trauma that's going to give especially since like david would probably be a little bit happier to find out his father was dead although i'm sure he'd be conflicted about it (laughs) but yeah it does seem more like this is about david and his continuing uh, emotional struggle with his father than it is about anything else and warlock just kind of Mm -hmm. ends up being emotional casualty to it another thing that's introduced in this series is zen the weaponless i'm sure you all have thoughts about zen and i'd love to hear them all i love that zen sees her mutant gift is he useless like Nightcrawler's like such a beautiful thing I would like love to see that uh, happen like let us fuck and like he's and she's like no it's not a beautiful thing my gift is useless I'm like girl why are you talking to yourself out of dick <laughs> clearly he likes art he's trying to get you to use your gift because he wants you to write the truth all over his body with your tongue like <laughs> how you miss that uh, <laughs> in that way she reminds me of Cerise from Excalibur, like the Shi'ar uh, <laughs> lady who comes in. You're like, oh, you talk too much. No more fucking. What? What? I think it's interesting that this is maybe the first time, certainly the first time for me, but maybe the first time that we've really seen a mutant who has a power that is related to creating art and creating something beautiful, but who is not an artist. And in fact, does not seem to have much of an appreciation for it. Usually when we see mutants with artistic or musical abilities, they are talented musicians or talented painters, stuff like that. And many, many mutants who do not have talents related to the creative arts also like to do things like Colossus, who is a talented painter, but it has nothing to do with his mutant gift. Rhapsody, of course, is a talented musician whose mutant gift is to do music. This may be the first time I think I've ever seen a mutant who has a gift that relates to art, but has little to no respect or appreciation for it, at least as a weapon in battle. She may just enjoy painting with the truth, but she does harp on it being pointless, and that's really interesting. Imagine being given a gift of creativity when you're not a creative person. I would, it would drive me insane. But it kills me because there are and they could be using their gift to get justice. They paint with the truth. They could be using that to help those who need justice but may not get it in a battle arena and instead they call it a useless gift. What the fuck? Yeah, that's a really eye-opening statement. X-Men Red number two where we saw some Arakai like their power is making light cubes. Like that doesn't really do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
right? And I wonder if, I mean, Iraq is just a war, warlike culture. So, of course, there's going to be some problematic shit going down there. I wonder if there's some section of Iraqi society where, like, just like those communities in x Red, people are treated as second-class citizens if their powers are not useful for war. I think that's what mm -hmm. this character is, I think, for me, is hinting at, that people are treated as worthless if they can't help the war effort. But what we've seen, like, X-Men Red 2 and, you know, like, all the stuff with the Fisher King, he doesn't even have powers and he's still respected because of his fighting ability. The art, like, in Araki, Araco is a, yes, they are a more warlike culture because they had to be, but they also have artists who live together in an artist community. So they're not, don't seem like they're second class and they seem like they celebrate them doing their art and beautiful things. I think, Nathan, that we're both uh, generalizing here because I'm extrapolating from one example and you're extrapolating from a single community. I mean, we can both be right and we can both be wrong here. That's a really interesting idea. I would love to see that explored more so we can kind of know what's the truth because, like, I could see that being the thing and I could see Zen having her own particular hangups about her power. What's interesting to me is the distinction between the mutant who knows that they can only create colored cubes that cannot affect the giant celestials but throws it anyway because they don't view their mutant gift as pointless regardless, you know, of what society says or what their art is like. The mutant gift is literally pointless in battle, but they don't seem to see it as pointless because they still throw it. Whereas Zen clearly would rely on her augments by the vial. So I wonder how much being around the locust vial may have influenced her perspective, if, if that's even well, going on here. The very fact that she has blades, not she didn't get a power enhancement. Tarn could have enhanced her power. Like her power could have been bumped up to being able to etch the sins or misdeeds of, you know, a person onto their flesh, you know, that making them into twisted art. That could have been something Tarn could have done. I am very sure of that. Just looking at like Mother Rapture, Sick Bird, Amino Fetus, like he has the ability to really bump that shit up and he didn't. They told her that her power is useful. She's become a sellout and, and has bought into the hype of you are unworthy so you have to prove yourself a good dog in other ways. So like she's just, she's a part of the system. It's cooning in many ways, but based on class instead of race. Intriguing. So we do have three to four pretty divergent perspectives on Zen's whole deal. I can't wait to learn more about this mutant so we can kind of like narrow it down a little bit. I think the last thing that we have not talked about yet and that we should before we leave is the appearance at the end of this humble traitor of gods and spices and other things, Mother Righteous, who appears to talk in a space cockney accent. I love how like over the top like stereotypically british as she talks who knows what she's all about but like and she's probably going to be evil as fuck and i'm going to regret saying this but like her look is amazing her first appearance is like hey loves i'm right here like i want to know more about this character so i can know if i stand her or if i hate her Zydre comes in a little last vial a little last vial a little last vial that's all i can think when i see her <laughs> that's the vibe she gives me and i love her character now now maybe this is just kind of how i'm reading her features but she seems like a slightly older woman so i mean it's the artist's take so the artist can do what they want but um boobs especially boobs that don't have a bra on are affected by gravity relax the boobs dan give me some just normal natural looking boobs especially for this wonderful lovely exceedingly refined slightly older woman i want
want to see slightly older people. Not everybody needs to look like they're their toned fit in their 20s, even when they're in their 70s. Okay, Daddy Magneto, I'm looking at you, dude. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I, w- I would I'd love to see a little bit more age added to the part of this particular character that is, yeah, but. I love, I love everything about her. I do. I'm never not going to see her as the grave robber now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I see her as basically an elder of the universe wearing Somnus's outfit. Like she appears to be... She reminds me so much of like the war profiteer from Empire, mm-hmm. you know, an elder of the mm-hmm. universe and sibling of the Grandmaster. She's mm-hmm. got that vibe to her and her whole like, I'm a traitor in gods and spells, spirits, demons. Really fascinating, really interesting outfit. I do love the like slightly older lady look to her. Is she the god of mischief we're looking out for? Is she trading them? Is she the reason that the Arachii are dealing with so many gods lately? She gives me some like the age I really want Destiny to be vibe. So like yes. maybe it's Blindfold's mom. Mom. Maybe it's mm. Ruth's mom. Mm. That would be so crazy. That would be wild if suddenly <laughs> Blindfold's mom turned out to be a, a, a mutant secretly <laughs> flying around in space on Mars. Red skin. Hey, so Blindfold's from like Virginia or the Carolinas, right? Like, I never read her that way in my head. She's from like there, right? Yeah, I never read her that way in my mind. I'm trying to every time, but it's, yeah. God, I really want to make this a cosplay now. Uh, that would rock. That would be super cool. Everybody would be like, are you on your way to the Eyes Wide Shut reunion? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, yes, I am. <laughs> I just realized she's also barefoot. Well, I guess if I got to sell feet pics, I got to sell feet pics. You know, it happens. Hey, you got to pay the bill somehow. Right. And I also don't think that that. That's uh, blindfold. I don't know if that's actually blindfold or just like a Legion version of blindfold too. So <gasps> yeah, that's another good question. Why would she not want her body? I mean, so a lot of people don't want their bodies, and I could buy mm. it from blindfold for sure. But yeah, you bring up a really interesting point that I didn't think about. Like, what if this is just another altar? Also, we noticed that like one of his altars is trying to escape, and it appears to be one of the pyrokinetic ones. Oh yeah, we missed that. It, it was in one of those panels. Yeah, I, I missed out on my first two read-throughs, and I love that one of the people in charge of the idea of a Krakoan bucking police has kept all of his altars in cages. Very healthy. That's bodes super well. <laughs> right? Like, for as much as I have some issues with this book i'm also looking forward to the next one because i do want to see where this goes because i would love i would love if they actually were making in-depth social commentary it's just the publication and the shipment of the book came at just a terrible time i am excited to see what the next issue looks like because there's a lot of threads in here that are super interesting the development of the iraqi culture is always going to get me although we'll always have that in x-men red but it's good to see it doing here. I think the premise of this book is either fundamentally flawed or intended to be a commentary on those systems that oppress us in real life. And if it is, it is not being handled so far with the care and execution that I think is demanded of it at this particular time in our society and in the world. This could be an entire story about how police are wrong and they need to be abolished by the end of it. But my question is, why even have them in the first place then? Like, it's... It's a book that's going to be on thin ice with me probably until it finishes, and I will likely be sticking around to read the rest of it. I want to see what's going on here, but I don't know how much I'm going to enjoy it. Anyway. Yeah, honest, yeah, honestly, yeah. the the next issue will probably tell me whether or not I need to keep investing in this book or not. Hey. 
Hey everybody, Nico here again. And I'm TK. And we are so deeply entrenched in this fucking Punisher run at this point. Is this really a Punisher book? Yeah, I mean, this is really pulling together a lot of stuff that just started with when I first came on the podcast and you and I first started talking, you telling me that I needed to read more Daredevil and to go in on the Zdarsky run. And really quickly from there, just by coincidence, all of this Electra stuff started happening happening at Marvel and the ties between all of this stuff that we were talking about as I was getting really into Daredevil were starting to strengthen within the story that was being published month to month. My biggest experience with Daredevil prior to reading it was the show. And so I have this kind of idea of Punisher as this character that butts heads with Daredevil. And we're now seeing the culmination and spin on that in a way that I think readers have really deserve for a long time following these books. We are here, of course, then to talk about Punisher number three, The King of Killers, book one, chapter three, Frank's First Sacrament by Jason Aaron, Jesus Saiz, and Paul Azaceta with colors by Dave Stewart and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. We're also going to be looking at the relevant pages of Devil's Reign Omega number one, which was in the grand tradition of Marvel saying it's six issues. No, never mind. It's seven. And this was written by Chip Zdarsky, with art by Rafael de la Torre, color art by Federico Blee, with letters by VCs Clayton Cowles, which is, of course, Devil's Reign Omega's Fall and Rise. So this is the weirdest situation we find ourselves in because I'm a big fan of specific runs of Punisher. I think that associating the Punisher with law enforcement is kind of in the same vein as associating Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night with sports. It's really so far from the fucking point what's wrong with you? Well, it's tough. Law enforcement really associated themselves with Punisher and saw- Well, they were wrong. They were completely wrong. And the lack of critical thinking really ought to be put up as an exhibit in the eventual public trial we'll need to have about law enforcement. But setting that aside, Punisher, as written by a lot of great writers, is very clearly meant to be more than what if a vigilante did whatever he felt it took to make the streets safe. That pitch is boring and I don't care about it. Punisher is a much more complicated character than that. And I don't say protagonist, I say character. It's possible for us to follow characters who are really horrible without idolizing them. And I think great writers of Punisher don't intend for you to idolize Frank. But I think there is value in telling a story about somebody with his viewpoint. And especially by taking his viewpoint and reframing framing it in a way that makes it so clear this guy is a bad guy. You know, we live in an age of anti-heroes and villain culture and I just want to be clear that when I'm like, man, I love Punisher comics. I'm like, I enjoy the trappings and design of Punisher comics in a vacuum. This is not something where I think this guy is a hero. He's pretty much always a bad guy. So that I feel like I'm reading a run where the Punisher is clearly getting in too deep something evil, even if he turns around at the end and is like, and now we take them all on each together, Daredevil, I'm not here for it. I am specifically invested in this run because this is Frank so out of his depth. You know, he's he's a monster that is famous for being like, I'm the monster of all monsters. Dude, you are nothing compared to the hand. And that recontextualizes every time Frank has been like, yo, Matt, well, this is what Matt contends with. I'm sorry that you contend with a guy who needs some D 
decent rhinoplasty, but Matt's got real villains, bro. Yeah, and you are slowly becoming one with them. It's a great opportunity for somebody to come in and write something that is subtle and character-driven and interesting and has some mystery to it, but is pretty clear right from the get-go that we are not looking at, uh, you know, a great hero who has been given a dangerous but important tool. We are looking at a bad man who joined a cult whose values align with the way he uses weapons. And that's all. Punisher associates himself with heroes. He associates himself with taking on the bad guys. He doesn't like how the heroes do it, but he thinks of himself as somebody who takes on the bad guys just like Daredevil does. Everybody else sees that the Punisher is a monster on his own, and even if he ends up being the enemy of a hero's enemy, that does not make him a friend. This is a really great way of rolling a bunch of interesting plot elements around the Marvel Universe into a character that we can finally dissect on a level where there's no question about how this kind of reflects things that are happening in society or how we look at something like law enforcement or ideas of vigilante justice in the real world. This is a monster who has joined a mythical death cult and things are going off the rails right from the get-go. And I think that's what we need to see from Punisher right now in this time where law enforcement adopts his symbol and we can't necessarily disassociate the character on the streets intentions with real people on the street. It does make a really powerful analogy for the idea of what is a more traditionally rightist law enforcement based perspective that weapons will make you more powerful. Having a gun, having more guns, putting more guns, more places is the answer to everything. And then we literally have a former law enforcement agent now worshiping at the altar of weapons of mass destruction. And that is really, if we're going to talk about an opportunity to take an idea and say it was meant to be one thing and it has since become so perverted from what it was meant to be. It's the way that in the most uncomfortable way possible, Tomorrow Belongs to Me from Cabaret, a song composed by two Jewish musicians, Fred Ebb and John Kander and their famous Kander and Ebb partnership, who would go on to shape Broadway so significantly throughout their incredible run together. And, you know, it is literally part of Cabaret, which is like, fuck Nazis. But somehow, neo-Nazi groups miss the irony and have made a song about how bad Nazis are one of their anthems and that is the sort of level of oops you did a Nazi that adopting the idea of the Punisher into law enforcement sort of opens up. I think that's a great way to put it and yeah I mean I fully understand that for a lot of readers this is just a deal breaker. The tie is too strong and they simply cannot stomach the book. I definitely get that and I would never tell anybody no you have to read this because this is the definitive statement on everything that we're talking about. But I will say that given that this is a property that Disney and Marvel are going to continue to publish because it is interesting to some people, I think the choices that are being made by Jason Aaron here and choices that have been made by other writers leading up to this that have put the Punisher in this place are really strong and I I don't see any way that somebody could read this and not see it as not just an indictment of the Punisher as a character, but really of his entire mission of everything he does. This reflects back all the way to the beginning of the character and he cannot be anything but a monster. He's a monster that we're following 
and there's some interesting things about this monster, but even with the heartbreaking family stuff that this book is getting into, I still don't have any sympathy for Frank. I don't see no. anything right in what he's doing. No. And I, and I don't think that's me being like, well, I just don't like him. I do think no. that this book is trying real hard to be like, bad man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a thousand percent. Punisher is an element of a comic era gone by that has in many ways forced Daredevil and that corner of the Marvel Universe into a pretty unfortunate sort of holding pattern that they've struggled to escape for so many years. The events of Devil's Reign and Devil's Reign Omega not including Punisher in a significant way is one of the most fascinating things because the Punisher's role in this bigger picture of the hand of the ongoing saga that Elektra and Daredevil are, well, you know, Daredevil and Daredevil are trapped in is how is he not coming up? Like, you know, we get this whole thing about burying Matt Murdock again and how some heroes know and the unbelievably hot mayor of New York City, Luke Cage, and his, his I don't know, his pal Friday, I guess, Danny Rand, looking also pretty fine. You know, there's just, how is how is Frank not fucking, how did, did they not know? How do they, how do they not know? How do they not know, TK? I guess the real problem for me is that a big chunk of this story was weaving in Electra fully having come into her own as Daredevil, having to reckon with her own past with the hand and her own future against them because she has this mission, this thing that she was coming to Matt with, with which is the two of them starting the fist and working against the hand in a coordinated, serious effort. Those were her really big contributions. She had her own chunk of the story that was about her past and her future and the hand. And we got a very brief glimpse of the Punisher at the end of Daredevil Woman Without Fear, you know, indicating that he is now the leader of the hand. But I was very surprised that in this final issue of Devil's Reign, especially with the two of them making the big, the two of them being Elektra and Matt, making the big pronouncement to any hero that is aware of the situation that they're doing it, they're starting the fist, they have this mission now. It was odd to not pull the Punisher in at all. And don't get me wrong, I love all of the people that we got to spend time with. Number one, there is something really wrong with me, but I am so unbelievably attracted to Butch. Yeah, we know. Oh my god, how is any fictional character so cute? Anyway, well, I don't think cute's the word he's going for, but like... The great thing about Butch is he is cute. Like this... Yeah! He is not the kingpin of crime, and he now is the kingpin of crime. And it's... I, I think it's especially great because Mike Murdoch, the Norn Stone Mike Murdoch that really existed, was not meant to be in Daredevil's world. And he was not meant to be attached. And the two of them were meant to be kind of... I don't know, like waiting for Godot-esque buddies in the background, just doing like petty crimes and kind of commenting on everything. But when they get pushed into the middle of everything, immediately Mike is murdered. And I think it's just foreshadowing for how incredibly inappropriate Butch is for the role that has been thrust upon him. And speaking of frankly, inappropriate for the role that has been thrust upon them. I'm a big Luke Cage fan. I'm a big Danny Rand fan. And I just want to be careful and be really specific. Danny is not the Iron Fist 
anywhere in here. And he is so much more interesting for it as this jubilee, bubblegum popping, you know, open tithe suit business badass supporting the coolest guy in politics. There is no one cooler than Danny Rand. So like I am here for this version of him. And it is in that regard that this book should have been called Devil's Reign Mayor Cage. Like it should not have been called Devil's Reign Omega. It should not have had Daredevil and Electra who are in seven pages in the book on the cover. It should have had Luke on the cover. Luke had a miniseries for Devil's Reign canceled. And for him not to be the cover feature for what is an issue ostensibly that highlights him in three separate stories, his family, his work dynamic, is a disservice and frankly, a little racially insensitive. I completely agree with that. I think this story of Luke Cage becoming mayor is one that people deserve to see and celebrate for what it is and to follow on its own. It became a really important plot point in the Devil's Reign miniseries, so it really would have been appropriate to make it a big, you know, single issue, issue zero, whatever that came at the end that really was just all about that. I also think what happens in his family dynamic where Jessica Jones finds one of the purple children and, I mean, ostensibly adopts him. That's a really important storyline too, both, you know, a child of color being brought to this family that, you know, he'll have a parent of color as well, but also how it ties into Jessica Jones's story. It's all very complicated and really moving and it deserved its own story, just like I feel like this Matt and Electra stuff for different reasons deserved its own story. Because I feel like the problem that this also leads to on a secondary level is certainly, like I said, secondary, nowhere near as significant as the under-celebration of Luke Cage, his new role in the Marvel Universe, and the significance of that role in other titles as well. But it does mean that the hand story feels second. It feels unimportant. And we haven't had a proper issue of like Daredevil in like six months. There is a chance that this is going to be a really slow build. We're seeing that in Punisher, you know, the fact that right now his main antagonist has been revealed to be Ares. That's going to have to go on for a while. Daredevil is starting back up soon. Whatever they're doing to take on the hand, I assume is going to take a hot minute. So I think we've got some time before we see any confrontation between these two. In that regard, I can forgive somewhat the idea that despite the fact that this was a Daredevil story, Devil's Reign led in directly from Daredevil and I kind of felt would lead out in a similar way. I can forgive it if we're going to really take our time with this, but even as somebody who is very new to month-to-month reading of Daredevil, the idea that Daredevil and Elektra are both in a Daredevil costume in full agreement that they are going to work together and be partners and kind of be functioning as like king and queen of this new sect that they are organized together working to take the fight to the hand and not just be on their toes trying to deal with the hand. That's a huge deal for continuity. That's a big change and that's a marked shift. I just sort of thought that Marvel might want the hype. I find myself wanting for page time, whereas I think this Punisher book is really stunning. Like all of the art top to bottom is beautiful, but it's like page 10 before we get anywhere new. And that means that this book is going to be a beautiful omnibus presentation. But the first few pages are just sort of like murder, 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 death. Creepy, sexy lady is like, you know, creepy, sexy lady at you. And Frank's like, um, how about not the sex part? Bring me more death. And 
and she's like okay so it just feels like it is giving us a lot of pages to show us some beautiful art that celebrates the medium whereas daredevil is giving us fewer pages that under celebrates the story and i could just maybe do a few less punisher pages for a few more daredevil pages yeah i mean especially given that we got like for instance an entire mini series about doc ock meeting up with multiversal doc Ock's and just kind of fucking around during devil's reign given the amount of page time that they were willing to dedicate to certain ideas it was very surprising that this relationship between matt electra and the hand was not given a little bit more of that time speaking of relationships that are getting some time that are are really truly shocking me that revelation on digital page eight for those who got the issue through comiXology right before the transition to the flashback art which i that i could man that art really gets me every time it's so good i don't even know it's fantastic but that revelation she really did visit him you know sexy hand lady really was like I came to you as a child we had had some question about perhaps was he truly visited or is this some kind of fever dream some sort of magical indoctrination no she really did visit him as a child now one of the things that that does is it sort of invalidates any decisions he's made on the way and for a reckless murderer and who was presented as a hero good it shows that there is something rotten in his core that is a thing that the hand liked you know she came to him because she felt that he was an agent of death and then you get this moment where you see a situation with a child and again I feel like it's one of these things where if I give you the setup and I say you know it's this kid that witnesses something horrible and does something about it you might think to yourself well that's glorifying Frank Castle and you know they're trying to say that you know he was just a hero trying to do good and protect his neighborhood no he was a completely disturbed child who was very obviously fascinated with murder and then saw a way to play into that fascination and give himself a pass by wearing the mask of a hero that too yeah this is again like i think what we're doing is not saying like here's frank castle one of the greats along with captain america and daredevil what we're seeing is here's frank castle he's been a horrible mess from the beginning frank castle perverted monster yeah and i also think that like for the rest of time this moment where Frank as a young boy stands on this rooftop where the smoke of the man he just set the fuck on fire drafts across his chest and it forms the Punisher skull it is truly he's always been a sick little bastard and like it says that no when Punisher did those things it wasn't because he was a good guy and people who looked to him no no bad man did bad things you think this is good you're bad and like that clear delineation because Daredevil plays with moral right and wrong the whole point of Daredevil right now is what is right and what is wrong this book is this is wrong you like this it's that scene from friends you like that you sick bastard right it's it's that right and like now that Punisher is literally the devil it's just too fun not to watch and then you get these little moments where like the hand ninjas come to him to espouse hand justice to them and the cases having to do with people that were murdered by these two ninjas and so Frank just immediately murders both of them because he says I you know I killed them because they were murderers and you only murder when I say it's okay and very clearly sexy old priest lady and everybody else that is there is like oh no we murder all the time but we're just gonna smile and nod and 
and tell you that we'll only do it when you tell us to. And it's one of those moments where you're like, this is exactly where Frank belongs. And the only person that thinks that he's better than this is Frank in his delusional mind. It's kind of like Frank is any character opposite Kristen Wiig's Gilly. (laughs) It's good to see the hand come after someone else because the hand is always Daredevil and Wolverine's problem. Seeing the hand really come after Frank, seeing how out of his depth Frank is. And I mean, I literally messaged you within minutes of reading it. (laughs) The scene where Frank's wife is clearly stuck on their dead kids because she's like clearly not all formed and the hand is like sedate her for now maybe maybe try some sedating is like one of the dude this is this is fire festival day one and everything's already wrong and you're all already sleeping in tents with one bottle of water to piss in like how does he not see it it's a mix of delusion and this is who he is we're going to get an interesting moment and i hope they don't just go with like sudden realization or even slow and slow burn realization that like whoops this is a death call i'm in the wrong place. I really would like to see a moment where Frank is like, I know this is a death cult and technically bad, but actually I'm a garbage person and this is 100% where I belong. This is where I belong. Like, I'm not saying I want to see Punisher go full dark devil in multiple ways. Number one, he is kind of becoming the dark daredevil. Number two, if he was suddenly filled with the soul of a demon, I would believe that as well because he's going up against Ares who let's just be clear Ares on page 27 of the digital is just like a giant disgusting wall of muscle and I am so here for it and I can't imagine how he's gonna go up against a god of war unless he really does become a god of death Ares says where's Punisher your god is calling you out death is a very big part of what Frank does that I don't think he really accepts how important that is he sees what he's doing as fighting a war. He sees himself as a warrior that is just trying to take down the enemy. This is all a war to him. And he says it a lot. And, you know, it's one of those things that really people use to glorify identifying with the Punisher. Like, we're out here fighting a war on crime. Like, fuck that. But now you've got the God of War showing up and being like, hey, I fucking hate this guy too. So all he actually has is this death cult and this horrible demon that is possessing him. He figures, all right, best way to help my wife let's resurrect my kids okay we have so many resurrections on the table right now you know kirsten mcduffie put the nornstone on mike slash matt's dead body i can only assume that means it's a matter of time and now we have frank bringing back his kids this is some crazy amount of like between this and the x-men and the eternals nothing is staying dead and it's intentional now this isn't like oh everything's coming back from the dead man comics are getting recycling no we're really seeing purposeful explorations of the boundaries between life and death in a meta contextual way that is representative of how the genre has been transformed and it's something we have needed to reckon with for a while we've been having resurrections for a long time and we've 
accepted everything from like perfectly plotted explanations to the most ham-fisted retcon because this is comics and this is what we do. This is a soap opera situation. We get the explanation we get and we move on. But we're getting to a point where we now had so many explanations that are all out on the table that we can actually form those puzzle pieces into a picture that is really complex and funny and metatextually interesting. And it allows us to reckon with our own need to never let characters go and to always demand that they come back. This is a really, really fascinating time to be reading comics and to be focusing on comic book characters. And I'm glad that every single corner is embracing it in a unique way. And speaking of embracing change, I was really concerned that Punisher War Journal was going to be just like more classic Punisher stories. Seeing the different costume on the cover tells me that no, we're in for more modern Punisher and we are seeing Marvel really working to push past and push through that sort of generic boundary of inability to grow as storytellers and rely on older iterations of characters that have in many ways become outdated. So I'm really hopeful that this continues to be a reinvention of the Punisher that explores what he's really always been, a ruthless killer, not a hero. I'm along for the ride and to see what Aaron does right now because this is all not really what I was expecting when I got into this. And I'm loving what I'm getting. Like Aaron is one of those writers who I often have to be pushed to read the thing that he writes because I say like, I'm just not really into it. But then of course, once I start reading it, even if it's not the thing that I want or was expecting, I'm just astounded by what he's able to do with characters and what he's able to pull out of them. That said, I see this confrontation between the Daredevils and the Hand and I want to be here for every second leading up to it because it really does feel like one of the big confrontations and shifts to the Marvel Universe is going to happen within whatever story puts these characters in conflict again. It really has to be heading toward people picking sides and it really can't be the Hand and Punisher versus everybody and I'm very curious to know who is going to wind up on the wrong side of this argument. Yeah, that is going to be an interesting thing. And TK, until we find out just who is going to be on which side of this battle, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. As always, guys, you can find me here on this show three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, producing content like MC2 Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, Chrono Skimming, and Premiere Fridays. You can also check out my work with my amazing contributor, Tori Sheehan, over on the Hubs Plus YouTube network on The Billy Club, where we talk about Daredevil from the first story on. I also have original work coming out in the upcoming Young Men in Love anthology coming out just in time for Pride, featuring incredible artists and writers like Terry Bloss, Cena Grace, Joe Glass, Anthony Oliveira, and more, and I couldn't be prouder to be part of it. Don't forget you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and you can find the show at xisforpodcast.com. And until next time, guys, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, you have the right to remain smushed. And until next time, we'll see ya. Thank you.